It's a little over six weeks until my new book comes out in the world, How to Work with Almost Anyone, June 27th, 2023, in case you're wondering. But I'm already selling it right here, right now. I'm selling it online, selling it on a website, bestpossiblerelationship.com, and selling it not hard exactly, but persistently. I mean, you can see what I'm doing, right? <laughs> this is how I'm brilliantly, cunningly weaving it into an introduction to a podcast. And I'll tell you why, because pre-order is a thing, and it's not a small thing. You can use it the way I'm doing now, which is to try and help get the flywheel spinning. So when the book does become available, it arrives on a rocket. Boom, it's there. All those pent-up sales help the book jump up the charts and perhaps land on a bestseller list. I don't, I don't really mind about the bestseller list. I do care about getting the kind of the algorithms, getting excited about the book. I heard James Clear, famous for Atomic Habits, say that publishing was a power log game. I'm not totally sure what power log means, but I think it means that the difference between the top 1% and the top 0.1% is massive. The difference between the top 1% and the top 10% is massive. It's that kind of long tail theory. So if you can be at the, the head of the long tail, you're selling a lot of books. So it matters. It really matters if you can get beyond the noise of all the books that come out in the world and get established as a classic, as an important book. And that pre-order helps you do that. Bestsellers keep on being bestsellers. Escaping the gravity of indifference really matters. But the other way, and by the way, there's a connection to this, <laughs> to, my, to my guests, so hang in there. Um, the other way to use pre-orders is to remove risk in the creating of something. If we know anything about marketing, build it and they will come is a load of old bollocks. <laughs> it's an out and out lie. It just doesn't work like that. But inviting people in to express their support for a project in the making can give you the cash or the resources or the confidence to take the leap. It's market research together often with cash money liquidity. In other words, this is for all of us, not just for people like me writing books, invite people in early and ask them for their support. And Yes, thank you. <laughs> I'm doing that here. I'm going to get on to the interview in a nanosecond. But you can pre-order my book at bestpossiblerelationship.com. There are some pretty great pre-order bonuses there um, if you snag those before June 27th. And now, welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from their favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Ash Amberge is a woman whose newsletter I've signed up for and I actually read because she has such a distinctive and opinionated and fearless voice. She's one of the original pioneers of the creator economy. She's been on the road since 2009 and she writes newsletters and books about the modern digital nomad experience and economy, about remote work and about using creativity and technology to do what you love from wherever you are. Now, you'll hear in the conversation that Ash is vibrant and funny and loud and distinctive in real life, just as she is when she's writing her newsletters. But if you met her when she was 14, when she lived in a trailer park with her mum, you'd have met someone using a very different strategy for making her way through life. For me, the only 
form of safety, I think, that I, I found was being able to not zag, fit in, do as everyone else was doing. So they wouldn't notice that in some way I was less than or that I had a defect, something was wrong with me. So I did everything I could, I painstakingly, to just look as if I had grown up in a two-story house with a golden retriever and I had carpeted staircase and lemon pepper chicken, which to me was the holy grail. Ash spent her early years making herself small, living a life that didn't attract too much of the wrong kind of attention. And she got by through school and eventually college. But then things started to change. Once. I graduated college and my mom passed away. There was just no one to tell me what the rules were anymore. I had no one that was close to me judging me in any meaningful way that I think a lot of us struggle with, this this feeling of pressure from parents and loved ones to, you know, be a doctor or whatever. I had none of that pressure. So without rules, without boundaries, without pressure, Ash started to question how she wanted to show up in the world who she was now, and who she might be, what she really, really wanted. Yeah, you know, you get, you get to the adult moment when you're finally, like, driving a car the, that's cool, and you've got a suit on, and you're going to work, and you're like, oh, my goodness, I spent my entire life for this? This is what I'm doing? And, and that, that was my first moment where I started to see myself really rebel, and it happened in a lot of ways, and, and particularly with my career, I think the Middle Finger Project was a fitting name for me at the time. In Ash's word, the Middle Finger Project is about beating the shit out of imposter syndrome. She began to write her own rules, and those rules began with a simple and excruciatingly hard question. There came a moment in time when, as I was questioning, what, I, what, what are the things that we need to do in order to do work that makes us proud and live a life that makes us happy. Yeah. This was this very present question for me since I didn't have anyone telling me what to do. Right. And I started acting almost like an anthropologist, which cool. was my career of choice when I was younger. And um, I started studying other cultures. I, yeah. I thought, you know, if everyone else in the world has come up with 101 different languages Maybe they've come up with 101 different ways to be happy. So I started looking at different cultures, subcultures, um, going almost as a participant observer and going salsa dancing and, and to different restaurants that I would normally never go to, to try and find these answers. And that put me in some really interesting situations. I met a lot of really interesting people, many of which just didn't have the same societal programming that we did. Yeah. And so I viewed, for example, a guy who was making maybe $10 an hour delivering frozen foods and who did not have aspirations beyond that as something refreshing. Mm -hmm. I wanted to study it. You know, right. why don't you have the pressure? Right. And why are you content with this? <laughs> My contentment. It was, it was, and yeah. he went to the gym every day. He didn't drink alcohol. He was just like very content. Mm -hmm. And there was something that really made me very curious about that. So I kept going down the rabbit hole of, well, what, what are all these other people doing? Yes. I started experimenting with my own career. I was very flippant about it and I didn't have a backup plan. <laughs> Maybe in spite of not having a backup plan, I was more 
right. belligerent about the whole thing, decided to start freelancing, did not manage money well, um, ended up kind of as like the self-fulfilling prophecy one night, finding myself sleeping in my car in a Kmart parking lot. Right. And that's the, that's the moment that I recall distinctly what had happened that night was, you know, I've got, I've got 26 bucks to my name. I now do not have a, a traditional role at a company. Even if I were to find a traditional role at a company tomorrow, it's going to be a yeah. month yeah. until they get me into the pay system. And I'm going, what does a person do? I don't have anything to sell. I don't have jewels. <laughs> <laughs> you, you didn't have a stash of jewels in the back of the car? I no. mean, like sometimes I have them, but they weren't yeah. on hand that day. All right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> And and that's really when I remember it like yesterday, I'm sitting there, I'm in tears, and yeah. the radio announcer is this like bumbling moron, and I hate him, and I want to turn him off. And then he said something that changed the course of my life forever. This guy goes, the new Rihanna album is now available for pre-order. <laughs> okay, that's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> Did you have a guess? I wasn't sure what it was going to be, but it was some like some call for something, but not here's a here's a way of getting the new Rihanna album. So what what was it about that that struck a chord in your soul? As soon as I heard the word pre-order, uh, it clicked. I right. thought to myself, oh my goodness, maybe I don't have to have property in the traditional sense, but maybe I could sell my ideas. Mm. And an idea is something that publishers have been selling for eons, right? Yeah. They've packaged ideas into a saleable format. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it just clicked. I had already started writing a little bit online. And that very night was when I put out an announcement that said something along the lines of, now presenting my new project. Right. And it was an opportunity to pre-order a book that I hadn't written yet. <laughs> Uh, and and it works. And I think I made $2,000 that first night oh, or brilliant. week or so. And it changed the course of my life forever. That was really the moment when I yeah. said, you know what? This is what we're doing. Speaking of changing courses, you've shifted the language you use to talk about your work from the middle finger project to the selfish forever. I'm just wondering what that change of framing or branding or positioning, what what does that symbolize? What's that? telling us about you. Thank you for, for bringing that up because it was a very difficult decision for anyone who has, has a personal brand or, you know, for me, I kind of grew grew up with that identity. Yeah. It did really see me through all of my twenties and a good portion of my thirties. I'm 38 now. And at some point it, it stopped being something I was excited to say out loud. Right. I no longer felt like it accurately accurately represented my goals, my message, what I was talking about. It felt a little angry. Yep. It no longer felt like me. And the moment I realized I did not want to get on an interview, let's say, and be like, hey, I'm the middle finger project girl. Right. That's when I knew something had to change. Right. And the shift the shift away from the the anger that's implied in the, and the, the kind of more overt rebellion that's applied in the middle finger project. What is it about selfish forever that has resonance for you now? Why is that powerful? 
when I was doing all of my brainstorming, I kept doing this thing in my in my journal every morning, like a real creep. I would just answer one question <laughs> right. every day. And the question was, what do I really want? Right. Great question. It's a simple question. It's harder yeah. to answer than it seems, isn't it? Really hard. Yeah. Yeah. What do I really want? Not what my audience wants. Not what right. I think, you know, would be marketable. What do I really want? Yeah. And I kept coming back to the same answer. And it was simple. Well, I want to travel the world and be selfish forever. Right. <laughs> I, I rejected this idea that as women in particular, you were selfish if you weren't having babies. You were selfish if you weren't settling down. You were selfish if you weren't doing all of the things. So in, in a very big way, it's still quite contrarian, yeah. um, just in, in a little bit of a different manner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's less rejecting the idea that you're selfish if dot, dot, dot. It's more about saying, yes, you're selfish and that's fine. That's actually a choice you can, an orientation you can make towards your own life. Yes. And it's really been resonating. We're doing selfish school now and everyone Ooh, in good. there is like, yes, I <laughs> want to be selfish. I need this more in my life. And I thought this was a good decision. It yeah. feels really good. I love the, I love what that says about permission. Like, this is how you give yourself permission to whatever that might mean for you. Yes, 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 permission. <laughs> We're doing things in a much more radically different way. I mean, online business is awful. So much of, so much of the things that we've built here is just, yeah. it needs to go. Yeah. It needs to go. We're, we're doing it differently. Let's talk about the book you've chosen for us, Ash. What have you chosen? So... When tasked with the idea to pick a book that really influenced me, yeah, I instantly knew which one I wanted to, oh, to cool. select. I did, and it—it's not something that I think would be expected because it's not your typical nonfiction business book. Yep. But the book is called "Tell Them Who I Am" mm -hmm. by an anthropologist named Elliot Lebo. And it's uh, the the lives of homeless women. Huh. I read it in college senior year, two thousand and six, right in the overlapping time when my mom passed away in January of that year, and I was graduating in May. Right. It was something that I was assigned to read right in those critical months. And as soon as I started reading it, I saw this potential alternate reality presented, right? My mom, I mean, trailer park, so severe social anxiety, couldn't come to a single one of my volleyball games ever. I was right. captain. I played year round. Couldn't, uh, couldn't physically make herself walk into a gymnasium because she did not know where she would sit. Right. Um, you know, subsisting on government assistance. There was a lot. And so growing up as a single only child, I had to, to figure out what life was going to look like. And when I read this book, I thought, oh my gosh, right. this is fascinating because I feel like it was an alternate reality, uh, one step yeah. away. And so. I feel, yeah, I can feel how how thin the membrane between the life you're living and the life that you're, you're seeing in those pages must have felt to you. It did. I was able to relate to it in a way that I shouldn't have been able to because I hadn't been faced in that situation until, yeah. you know, one day later, or I'm sorry, one, I don't know, gosh, I don't, 
years later, there I am in a Kmart yeah. parking lot going, is this going to be the moment that I've been maybe waiting for since college when this happens to me? Yeah. Um, so but I selected the book. I selected the book for, for that reason, but also because what, what this book does is he went and lived in different shelters around the Washington DC area. This is dating back to 1993, still right. really relevant. Um, and what he's talking about in this book is actually the real stories of real people who are in this situation. And what you see is it's so counter to the narrative that mm. most of society would like to impress upon, you know, someone who's experiencing homelessness. It's a complete different perspective. And I thought it was just really important, integral reading for all of us who, you know, are struggling to figure out what we want to do, who we want to be. And the question always comes up of like, well, what if I fail? I don't yeah. want to be on the street, for example. So it ties into my work in a different way because really um, I wonder how much of this is preventable with modern technology, the ability to share your ideas, sell your ideas. It's, it's not right. as cut and dry as it used to be. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it goes back to your story about, you know, pre-order, <laughs> pre-order this, allow me to give me the space and the money and the time to create this thing and create some uh, form of economic independence as part of that. Um, Ash, I'm, I love that you've chosen this book and I'm excited to hear the two pages you picked for us. How, how did you pick the two pages? Actually, I cheated. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Perfect. I cheated a little. I hope you're okay with so you it. Still got that, you've still got the middle finger project going on here. I can feel it <laughs> running underneath, but that's okay. Uh, you know, the two pages is a, is a rule made to be broken if you want to break it. So that's great. How did you cheat? That, well, I, what I did is I went through and I reread the book and I selected some really relevant highlights that I think work well together in Perfect. sequence of really yeah. just talking about uh, what it's actually like to experience that. That's brilliant. Well, Ash, over to you. I'm excited to hear your pages. Homelessness can transform what for others are little things into insurmountable hurdles. Indeed, homelessness in general puts a premium on little things, just as some homeless women seem to have learned more than most of us, perhaps to value a small gesture of friendship, a nice day, a bus token, or a little courtesy that others might take for granted or not notice at all, so too can events or circumstances that would be trivial irritants to others approach catastrophic proportions for the homeless person. For some of the women, day-to-day -day hardships began with the problem of getting enough sleep. A few women complained that they could never get any sleep in a shelter. Grace was one of them. There's no getting any sleep in a shelter, she said. Only rest. There was indeed much night noise and movement. There was snoring, coughing, sneezing, wheezing, retching, farting, cries from bad dreams, occasional weeping, seizures, talking aloud to oneself or to someone else who may or may not have been present, and always movement back and forth to the bathroom. Grace was complaining about noise, and she found a partial remedy in earplugs. But earplugs could not help those women like Kathleen, who were kept awake, not by noise, but by questions. Is this it for me? 
how did I end up here and how will I get out? Having to get up at 5.30 in the morning and be out of the shelter by 7 was a major hardship of shelter life. It was not simply the fact of having to get up and out, but rather that the women had to do this every day of the week, every day of the year, no matter what the weather or how they felt. On any given morning, as the women drifted onto the street, one might see two or three ailing women. This one with a fever, this one with a cough, a headache, a limp, a stomach ache, still have to pick up their bags and walk silently into the weather. The women especially miss Saturdays and Sundays, which looked just like Tuesday and Wednesday morning for them. The occasional opportunity to stay in bed an extra hour or two was desperately missed. Not being able to sleep in ever, especially on the weekend, was seen by many as a major deprivation that unfairly set them apart from the rest of the world. It's all too easy to think of homeless people as having few or no possessions, but one of the major and most talked about problems was storage. How to keep one's clothing, essential documents, and other belongings secure and accessible. The preservation and protection of belongings could be a major consumer of one's time, energy, and resources. A principal difficulty was the fact that most emergency shelters had only limited space for individual storage, often space for only two bags or two small cardboard boxes. And it was not uncommon to find shelters where one could not store anything at all. Even where limited storage space was available, many women were reluctant to use it because there was no guarantee that their belongings would be intact when they returned. Given the contents of their bags, boxes, and suitcases, it is not surprising that the women were fiercely protective and possessive of them, sometimes to the patronizing amusement of outsiders. The importance of clothing and toiletries is self-evident. Moreover, the women had to carry proof of their social existence with them. Without a home address, telephone number, or job as testimony to their existence, they needed their birth certificates and other documents to prove that they existed as legal persons with rights to assert and claims to make on society. Many other women, however, mainly recent arrivals to homelessness or those with a car or other resources, often had far more belongings than they could carry or store in the shelters. These belongings were typically stored in their cars, public storage warehouses, a church basement, or even a garage or attic in the house of a friend or relative. Most of the time, these non-portable possessions looked forward, not backward. These were the things that were being saved for the future rather than remembrances of things past. Here, in the automobiles and the public and the private storage spaces, the women kept not only clothing, but pots and pans and linens and silverware, lamps and chairs, hat boxes and electric typewriters, sometimes rugs and other heavy major household furnishings as well. Sarah regularly visited her storage unit to fondle her carefully wrapped crystal and linens. Clearly, the main value of these furnishings lay not in sentiment, but in the hope, if not the prospect, that they would all be needed tomorrow or next week or next month when the woman once again set up housekeeping in her own place. So great sacrifices were made to store belongings and the ever-present threat of losing them was a major source of anxiety and stress the smallest and cheapest spaces were 5 by 5 and rented for $37.50 to $42.50 a month, which meant that some of the women on public assistance spent about 25% of their income for storage alone. Others spent much more. 
During her first couple of years of homelessness, Louise paid $156 a month to store her household goods. In addition to these general problems, there were hundreds of annoyances, some of which could indeed become serious problems, such as not having access to toilets when one needed them, especially on Sunday mornings, and holidays when most public buildings and retail establishments were closed. In bad weather, the women were often forced to spend time in eating places where they are not welcome, and they have to drink a lot more coffee and nibble on a lot more snacks than they wanted to or could afford just for the privilege of being able to stay out of the rain or cold or heat. Sexual harassment was commonplace on the street, trying to sleep in one's car, everywhere. And sometimes harassment became assault. These then, problems around sleeping, fatigue, storage, health, sex, harassment, and dozens of unpredictable difficulties encountered on the street were some of the little murders of everyday life that confronted homeless women. I'll pause there. I think that's a good two pages. It is. What's... What's important for us to take away from what you've just read? What fascinated me about it was the idea that once you get to a certain place, Mm. you don't have a telephone number, you don't have easy access to a toilet, to a shower, you can't iron your clothes, um, you're automatically presumed to be like the dreads of society, even if you go to an interview how difficult it is. The book stresses really the actual difficulties that none of us see because a lot of the the common narrative is like, well, just get a job. I saw my mom struggle with that. I saw these women in this book really um, struggle with this for a lot of different reasons, even though the anthropologist states that the large majority of them want jobs and they're out looking for them. But there's all of these hurdles that need to be addressed. Mm. And not having an email address, not having a phone is a biggie. Yeah. Even if you get to the interview stage and you're there and you don't have a way to be contacted, that's not like, oh, hey, this is the shelter. Right. It presents a real, a real systemic problem that I am so grateful I personally was able to overcome. But I wonder how many people are there because they just, these small little murders on everyday life, they cannot get around. It's fascinating. I think it's an important conversation. I think so too. There's a number of questions I've got going through my head and I'm just trying to think which one I want to ask you. It's a big topic. That's a big topic. Well, I think I, I want to, I think I'm curious to know what, what does the experience of seeing your mum and reading this book, how does that influence you on how you manage your freedom? Well, I like to take as many opportunities as I can because I am in a position to do so. Yeah. And... I think about someone like my mom, who is just such an awesome person, but so paralyzed by life. Mm. And I think about 
what would have changed for her had we had stuff like the internet back then? She was a great writer and she loved gardening. She was obsessive with the garden. (laughs) We may have lived in a trailer, but we had the nicest garden in town. (laughs) And, and I wonder what, how life might have changed for her because if if society and social things were her problems like the internet would have solved that in a lot of ways yeah she yeah. could have maybe had a different reality for herself and so for me i don't suffer from that i'm happy to get on and talk and, and get on stage i mean i'm a, i have no idea yeah. how i came out of her it doesn't <laughs> make <know>. sense <laughs> <laughs> Probably I grew this ability to like stronger, right? As, as like a strength mechanism. For sure. Yeah. To prevent. <laughs> but um, I think that all of us are. I'm going to say obligated. Yeah. To do with, the, with what we can, with the gifts that we have. The ideas that we have. So many ideas never see light. Yep. Because the person who has the idea doesn't believe that the idea is worth it or that they're worth it. And I think that this really is freedom, right? No one is stopping any of us from right now getting on, starting an all new website dedicated to whatever you want in the entire world. Yep. And I think that's important to remember. So much of it becomes like, well, there's no jobs available or I'm having trouble here and there. And I really see freedom, the ultimate freedom as being able to create, create yeah. your own, your own art, your own ideas and your own commerce. You know, when they talk, when people talk about freedom, they, there's two sides to it. There's freedom to, and that's what you're talking about at the moment. And there's freedom from, mm. and I'm curious to know for you, what is freedom when you think about freedom from? Oh, that's a really good one. I want to answer you as honestly as I possibly can. I think I am quite free. The debilitating effect of feeling like I am an imposter every day. It's something I've had to work on for a long time, Mm. but I know that that is a real, I mean, that's a real prison. And I think I've gained a lot of freedom from that over the years, just through trial, error, experimentation, and realizing that no matter what I do, I'm always going to feel that on some level. Yeah. Yeah. So just let it go. I'm just going to start Selfish Forever. I'm just going to do a new thing. I love it. You know, (laughs) we're just going to do it. And it's okay if you don't think that I'm qualified because I'm going to prove that I am, right? Yeah. You know, Ash, we've been talking about your your shift in identity and also you have a lifestyle where you travel the world. So you're you're a nomad, a working nomad. How do you know when it's time to move on? whether that's from your sense of self or from your sense of place, how do you know when it's time to go? My biggest indicator is when I don't want to go outside anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and, you know, it happens when I'm really in a new place and I'm thrilled. I'm For a creative person, travel is just, ah, 
it's a gold mine full of inspiration and ideas. And I really love going and walking and, and looking at art and things to inspire me. And the moment when I'm like, nah, I'd rather just stay inside all day and write in here. That's when yeah. I think it's it's time to move on. Yeah. I've been feeling that in Costa Rica quite a bit. And what does the idea of home or, or rooted mean to you? Well, funny enough, I've had my own storage unit uh -huh. since I graduated college. And it is something that you know, I, I laugh about my literary agent and I laugh about the storage unit because I'm always, anytime I'm in the States, I'm taking a trip to the storage unit. Right, right. <laughs> and I have now two storage units in two different places. So uh, we laugh about that. But I think that a big part of my strategy now is to find a home base mm -hmm. that I can start to establish a sense of roots. I did do that in Philadelphia. I had a beautiful, cool, really cool flat that I bought in a historic yeah. building. I loved it. I furnished the whole thing. And then I ended up selling it during during the real estate boom. Yeah. Um, but I, I liked that feeling. It did feel like I had a place. Costa Rica served as my home base for a while. My partner is Costa Rican, so it makes sense right. for us to come and go. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's really important, especially for when I'm having a conversation about like adult nomads. Yes. Who want to have careers and families and still incorporate more travel into their life. The idea of the home base is really, really important because we don't want to have to pick between life right. of travel and having that security and safety. So I did a breakdown recently in a class I was giving and actually for the like the really Luke's adult nomad life with a home base and with at least three months of travel a year, you're looking at about $120,000 in expenses. Right. Um, how, I mean, what is a home base? I mean, what, what constitutes that sense of home? Hmm. It's the people. Yeah. Don't you think? I mean, you've been in Toronto for a while. I have. I've been in Toronto for 21 years and I've been away from Australia and Canberra, the city where I grew up for 31 years. And I'm 55, wow. so, you know, that's now well over half my life and most of my adult life that I've been away from where I grew up. But when I go back to Australia, um, you know, it's partly the the people, but the truth is many of the people who I was friends with no longer live in Canberra. Canberra's a city mm -hmm. people leave rather than often go, ba go back to. But... I find something very resonant about the landscape and the feel of the sun and the smell of the eucalyptus trees and the dust and how my parents' garden looks. So I feel like there's a sort of, I don't know, Proustian landscapey thing around home. But I'm not entirely sure what it is that makes that feel so, um, so much like a place of return for me. You know, I think I want to rescind my answer because I, I, yours is much better. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I feel that way weirdly in England, even though I have no ties to England. Something right. about the land. Right. <laughs> right. It's, it's Put me anywhere yeah. in England and I'm like, the grass. Yeah. <sighs> See, my wife is like that too. She's like, Engl England's really where I would choose to make a home. I don't want to live in England because I'm Australian. And so we're naturally allergic to living in England and it's all a bit <laughs> gray and wet. 
Um, <laughs> but she responds to the history and the landscape there in a really powerful way. Yeah. It is interesting how you feel connected to different places automatically, naturally. I feel that way about England, the British Isles, Scotland, Ireland. I am 53% Irish, so maybe there's something there, there but I feel that way. I do feel that way a bit in my hometown in this yeah. like trailer parky. I mean, it was like the county responsible for voting in Donald Trump, which I say with no love, <laughs> um, but like this kind of atmosphere that actually has a lot of decay and isn't really, I'm going to say the nicest atmosphere. Yeah. I, I have a weird sense of, yeah. of pull there. Uh, a lot of it I think is, is just memories, isn't it? Where you, yeah. where you have memories feels really comforting. I still got a, a, a question that shifts the, the conversation a little bit. You know, when I was kind of burbling through an introduction about you, I talked about how distinctive your voice is in, in your writing. And there's one question which I thought about, but I'm not going to ask you, which is like, when did you first start noticing and cultivating that distinctive voice? But here's a, 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 I think, a trickier question. How do you not become a parody of yourself? When, <laughs> and I'm asking because I have a distinctive voice in my writing as well. And there are sometimes I'm like, am I writing this or am I writing like I think Michael would be writing this? Um, oh, my God. And I'm just wondering how you walk that line. I love this question. I don't think that a lot of people are that aware that that's a thing that totally happens. Right. That's how I started feeling about the middle finger project. Like the right. container itself was restricting the way I showed up inside of it. Yeah. That's exactly it. I mean, it felt like I needed to really stay on brand with this persona that didn't feel like me anymore. Yeah. So I guess step one would be burn it down. <laughs> burn, 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 down, it down. The, burn down the barn so you can see the moon as the famous poem goes. Oh, yeah. yes. I love that. Yes. Burn down everything. The other thing that I think has been helpful for me is writing on paper. Mm. Um, I don't lie to myself on paper. That's powerful. Yeah. I notice. And that's why I kept asking that question. What do I really want? Right. And I will in, tell in myself journal, the truth. Whilst writing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. With a real yeah. pen. Then. Especially because there's some level of permanency to what you're writing on paper. Yeah. It's yeah. like whatever I'm writing here must be true. And so I think that's really helpful. And the other thing that really has been a game changer for me over the years is just first thing in the morning. It has to be I wake up at five. I just sit down without anybody talking to me. And that's when I find my real thoughts. Mm. Whatever's on my heart, my mind, it happens at those very early hours. I cannot, though. I can't screw it up. I cannot look at my email, not one. <laughs> my brain, it just starts, it starts turning faster than I would like it to with all the other right. things that are on the agenda. Yeah. I need to just forget about the world. Yeah. And then usually that's when I end up, I'll put something in a notebook. Yeah. And then I have to retype it because then I'm like, this is all right. I think I would have put this on the internet. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's just been great conversation. And, you know, you've, the, the reading was very powerful and really brought a topic that's not, that I feel I haven't 
helped you do justice to in asking you the, the questions, but I, I love that you brought it to us. Um, as a final question, perhaps, is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between you and me? Well, I would actually be curious how you avoid the parody in your, in your writing. Have you had any strategies? I think it's such a great question. Um, well, I have a proofreader, my wife, who has no fear about plunging a red pen repeatedly through my eye and my heart. So that helps. You know, she just, she's good at pointing out where I'm, I'm kind of falling into old tropes. Um, and then I think I find this, if I can think about the structure of what I'm writing, the structure often allows me to then disrupt the voice or the metaphor or whatever that I'm trying to use. And sometimes when I'm writing books, I'm, I try and set some design parameters. You know, this is strongly metaphorical. This is not metaphorical. These are stories about me. These are stories about geeky fact things that I like and I can use as metaphors. So I'm trying to make some design choices at the start that help shape things as well. Um, That's good. But I think there's uh, but you know, I've, I've got patterns of, of how I behave. Like I've got a, I've, I've got a, a tendency to try and be overly, let me tell you a self-deprecating story about myself. And like, sometimes I'm like, that's actually just not that. I, I got feedback once from an editor who was like, is this book an autobiography or is it a business book? <laughs> I'm like, it's meant to be a business book. So it's like, why don't we cut all the stories about you that you're telling your way through? And I'm like, that's, that's career. A good call. So that's, through the yeah. heart, though. Yeah, through, through the, the heart. heart. I know, but that's why. That's what editors do. They help you see um, the stuff in your writing that you can't see yourself. It's so true. Uh, we had a conversation in a class recently where we just talked about this idea of like throat clearing. Yeah. And how your first couple of paragraphs are nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> They're exactly. always going to be just like. First chapter, I work on the assumption the first chapter is a load of trying to get, you know, limbering up and you can pretty much cut it because the first chapter is you trying to explain what you plan to say in the coming chapters. And you're like, why don't you just start at the second chapter? So I'm like, yep, first chapter is always rubbish. Isn't that the truth? It's like we have to go through this awful process. Yeah. Like you're standing up on stage and you're sitting there stuttering. That's what it feels like a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like the idea of putting the structure around it too. Sometimes when I'm writing, I will think to myself, okay, Ash, what's the point? What's the yeah. takeaway? What are you trying to get to here? Because are you getting there or? <laughs> yeah, have you, are you, are you, have you vanished into the jungle? <laughs> I love that Ash meditated on that hard, big, juicy question. What do I really want? I mean, I know you've heard that before. It's one of the questions from the coaching habit. And I think I say in the book that it's the hardest of all of those seven questions to answer. But how do you wrestle with it and actually get an answer you can trust? I don't know for sure. I'm still figuring this out myself. I just like some of the clues that Ash gave us. First, keep answering it. She journaled and she journaled and she journaled. The first answer is almost never the best answer. Second, she gave herself permission to be selfish. Not what do others want from me, not what does society expect from me, but what do I really want? 
And finally, and I think this is really important, she took her best guess and tried it out. Because this isn't an answer you can just intellectualize and figure out. It's one you have to test by engaging with reality. You have to step forward into the unknown and say, well, let's see. Is this what I really, really want? Two interviews to complement this beautifully from the two pages with MBS backlog, which is now getting substantial. Juliet Funt, um, a friend of mine, such a smart thinker, brilliant at A, living a life on the move. She travels quite a bit with her family. B, and this is her real super strength, creating space, white space, as she calls it, in her life so she can be doing the work that matters most and not be consumed by all the other stuff. That interview is called The Powerful Pause. And then I'm going to mention Liz Wiseman, who I mentioned quite a lot <laughs> as a, a recommended person. Actually, I'm doing a, a, a summit with Liz on June 3rd, along with my friend Tasha Urich. Um, I think uh, if you're listening to this now, you'll have a chance to uh, register for that. It's a free summit. We do 75 minutes of teaching together. Liz is such a masterful teacher, and really, she's fantastic. My conversation with her is called How to Thrive. Um, but you'll find about the summit by just signing up to the newsletter because um, we'll be promoting that out through the newsletter at mbs.works. If you're not already on that, I'd encourage you to jump on mbs.works and you'll find a place to sign up for the newsletter for sure. If you want more of Ash, and as I say, I'm a fan of her newsletter, um, selfishforever.com is the website and at Ash Amberge on everything else. So A-S-H-A-M-B-I-R-G-E. Watch that surname. It's a little tricky. I, I keep misspelling it. I keep putting the R and the I in the wrong orders, but it's A-M-B-I-R-G-E. Thank you for loving the podcast. Thank you for reviewing it, starring it, passing it on, all of that good stuff. I appreciate you. I think you're awesome and I think you're doing great. <laughs>